You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. Welcome to episode 43 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast. You can find us broadcasting on Middle Earth Network Radio as well as on the Star Wars Report website. That's www.starwarsreport.com. Our episodes are even available right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I am one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, Mark Hurlman, and with me like Whistler to Koran Horn, the one, the only, the EU guru himself, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. Good to be back. Uh, finishing out our X-Wing coverage this time. So much coverage. You know, there was I was I was tempted like about two or three times to be like, man, we should break this one up into three more. The story in this one, I think, far and away is going to be something I'm going to be enjoying talking about. But what are we talking about, Nathan? Well, I guess first, the first thing to talk about is that we do have a winner for our contest from a couple episodes ago. That was to win that 2012 Del Rey Star Wars sampler that was given out at a couple different Comic Cons and at Celebration 6. The winner of that was Drew Nick. So congratulations out there to Drew. It's been mailed out to him. Yeah! Congratulations! I would also be remiss if I did not mention that new web series, that video series we got going now, tied into the show here, called From the Star Wars Library. It's a video series going through the different Star Wars books and comics in approximate publication order. You can find it at youtube.com slash chronoradio. That's C-H-R-O-N-O. R-A-D-I-O, like my very first podcast's name. Having a lot of fun with that. Going to be putting up some new ones here in the very, very near future. Now, really quick on that, Nathan, these are exciting. Just for me, you know, getting to watch your library in action, it's fun to see. How long are you planning on making each of these little webisodes? The length of each one, we're shooting for anything less than 15 minutes, because uh, I think now my YouTube channel can actually go beyond 15 minutes in length, but I figured that's a nice round number and it keeps it from going on and on and on. Plus, I gotta record tons and tons of these to actually get through the whole library, so the less I spend on one, the more I can put out at a given time. Well, and that's cool too, because it gives the the, uh, listeners and the viewers something to know when they go in. They're like, well, you know, typically he does 15 minutes, but occasionally he gives us a 45 or two and a half hour long one. But no, I mean, it's cool that you're planning on sticking to a 15 minutes long enough to get into some details, but short enough to not be too overwhelming. I know you and I, you know, we can throw some facts at people and they're like, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, that's the plan. I mean, not overwhelming so much, just kind of a quick sense of, you know, where it fits into things, very much like the spirit behind the Comics Companion or the Essential Readers Companion, which, of course, were a big inspiration from it, along with, of course, uh, getting some suggestions out there uh, from the audience, such as David Noche, who kind of came up with the original concept that I then ran with. He was asking about that for a very long time before I finally said yes because I always thought it was a little bit beyond what we could do. But keeping it to about 15 minutes, I think bite-sized versions will work. We may have to change your nickname to the EU Genie. Your wish is my command. <laughs> and of course, beyond that, we have our main topic for the episode. So as we always say, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions, questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we conclude our recent X-Wing series coverage as we finish looking at the X-Wing comic series, Omnibus by Omnibus. This episode, we take a look back at X-Wing Omnibus Volume 3, 
including In the Empire Service, Family Ties, Masquerade, and Mandatory Retirement, also often referred to altogether as the Rise of Isard story arc. Consider this your spoiler warning, because here we go! You know, that's interesting that it's considered the Rise of Izzard story arc. I mean, because for me, I always look at it as the uh, Baron Fell story arc. I mean, although it kind of ends with you wondering, you know, okay, well, what happens next to him? But we'll get there. You know, and as I said, I wanted to almost make this three episodes because I really feel like of all the omnibuses, these ones, or these ones, this one, which is a collection of a few trades, are the ones that have the most dialogue. There's more going on in this one omnibus than the other two together, as as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I feel like the plot of the Rogue Squadron as a squadron gets moved so much more significantly in this one omnibus than the first two. I mean, the first two did good job setting everything up, kind of giving you an idea where the characters were going to be. But this one had more of there was there was more of a galactic theme. There was more, uh, uh, you know. Freedom was at stake. More of what you expected of the Rebellion versus the Empire happened in this one. And it played well. I mean, art aside, I, I enjoyed the art in this one, Omnibus, more than I did all the Omnibuses combined. There were times where it got a little cartoony, but it still was in the generalized theme that I liked, that I never really had a complaint when it came to the art department. I, I really think my only complaint with this was that there was just so much dialogue that it was... It, almost a chore to get through it. You, nay, I could almost say you could convert most of this omnibus into a novel and it would do pretty well. There were a lot of times where a lot of the the, the battles and stuff were happening so fast that I really kind of wish there was more verbiage just to kind of give me that detail, but I understand why they set that aside. There was so much dialogue going on in this book that had they done that, you would have never really wanted to get through it. It would just been too overwhelming. Uh, but it's, it's definitely something about this that I really enjoy, and that was Fell. Phil's story and the fact that we find out that he's actually related to Wedge and how that all falls through with his sister, Wedge's sister, uh, Starfare. You find out that, you know, she was on Coruscant when Wedge's family had died and she just assumed that they had all passed away and then later found out that Wedge was alive. He was with the Rebellion. But at this point, she's already fallen in love with Fel and she's worried about compromising Fel because of her connections to the Emp or the Rebellion. There was a lot of really cool things like that going on. Plus, we had Coran Horn show up. I'm sorry, Coran Horn. You know, my favorite, he's there. We see him as Corsac. Plus, we had a tie to this in the beginning one where we see his father, and his father was there, Halhorn. He was there when uh, Fell tries to turn in, I think the guy's name was Post. Uh, the guy was was a, a corrupt guy on Fell's world. It was cool because it gives you a lot of Fell's backstory. You get a lot of these, these flashbacks and stuff to when he was on the, uh, I can't remember the name of the planet, but he's a farm boy just like Luke, and he, he attributes that at the beginning. You know, I could have been your Luke Skywalker at, there was a lot of really cool things going on just in the character side of things. That's true. There really is a lot to this. And I actually think that I missed one of the comics when I was listing them off here for our intro. This does also include the making of Baron Fell. And as you said, it makes up a lot of different trade paperbacks. What we've got here essentially is the In the Empire Service trade paperback worth. Plus then they took the making of Baron Fell plus Family Ties, which was essentially a double-length issue, and then a story arc made up of only two issues, combine them into a new title, Blood and Honor, and then we got a separate trade paperback for Masquerade, also four issues, and then Mandatory Retirement, also four issues. What we've got here is almost the rest of the X-Wing series. It hasn't been in the previous Omnibus series. Uh, this series ended with Omnibus number three back in 2007, and then it turned out Oops, somebody screwed up somewhere for whatever reason, and they left out an issue. 
there was an X-Wing Rogue Squadron number one half issue that was released through Wizard, the guide to comics at one point, and I think it was also made available as part of one of the trade paperbacks, but it got left out when they were putting this omnibus series together. It seems to make very little sense why it would be. We talked last time about how they've got that Rogue Squadron special that was out through Applejack's, that it just kind of seemed weird that that was placed where it was. Well, here's another story done by pretty much the regular creative team that's even referenced in Mandatory Retirement by showing one of the characters who died in it, but it, this story right before the Battle of Yavin, shows up nowhere in this Omnibus series. It didn't show up in Omnibus form until this year, 2012, in The Other Sons of Tatooine. So for those of you who are out there trying to get the entire Rogue Squadron series, you're not getting it with these three Omnibus editions. You're getting all but one issue. For that one, you'll have to seek it out separately, or you'll have to wind up picking up the other sons of Tatooine. What we do get here, though, is the broad story of Suntir Fell. And I really do like the fact that all of a sudden, you're right, it gets to be a much more galactic scope type of story. It's not just about the rogues fighting some local menace. This time, you get this broader arc made up of these individual story arcs where we get introduced to new characters. Uh, we get introduced very early on to Darkeus, Standro Jasir, if it's how you pronounce the Rodian's name, Evan Berus, and Zarxi Hula, or Hulwa, whatever. Um, we get introduced to four new rogues very early on in the storyline. We see a couple of them die, really, deaths that mean absolutely nothing because the characters got zero character development before they died. One of the characters, Caius, they even mentioned that he's dead, and I'm like, who is Caius again? I had to go back to the opening pages of In the Empire Service to figure out who it was that just croaked. Yeah, um, yeah. Who? But you get some... So, some broader action here, and my favorite part of it really is, I mean, well, I guess two two parts. One is the fact that we do get to see the governments on both sides. We see Icehard maneuvering with the, I guess they call it the tribunal, I guess the Imperial Ruling Council, but she calls it the tribunal, where you've got these different members who are trying to undermine Pestage while she is in the process of sort of undermining him from the other direction, kind of turning them against each other, maneuvering to put herself into power. But then on the other side you do see the New Republic Provisional Council with Borsk Felia jockeying for position. Uh, you see Leia, of course, show up, Mon Mothma. It really makes for kind of a cool dynamic to actually see the decision-making on either side rather than just the battles themselves. Real quick on that, man. Well, Borsk, I think this is one of the first moments that I really started to hate his character. I mean, you know, he always kind of got under your skin before, but when you see him visually and he's like got all these angry looks and he's pumping his fist in the air and he's always coming across like he knows what's best. And then when he, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll be like, well, we should be doing this. And then Leia will bring up some point. Okay. Well, I vote we do it, even though I'm against this. And then when all, all hell breaks loose, I knew we shouldn't have done this. It's like, oh, I wanted to hit him so bad. And then on the same token, Leia and, and what she wanted to do in the later trade with, with State, I was just like, are you kidding me? Really? No, I'm actually agreeing with the Bothan for once. I, and I think that that was an interesting thing because from the Bantam era novels, what you see with the Provisional Council was something that was huge in those books. And I remember sometimes I would be so bored by what was going on in those books, but at the same time as an adult looking back on it, it's, I can understand why that was needed. Yeah, it's kind of necessary the way we discuss on Republic Forces Radio Network a lot about the Senate episodes when dealing with the Clone Wars. You need to have that political structure because it's the political maneuvering that's going to sort of shape the galaxy to come, not necessarily the individual battles. In this case, though, the second thing that stands out to me as the really cool thing is the artwork. 
John Nadeau was doing a great job. Then Steve Crespo came in and did an outstanding job with the making of Baron Fell. But by the time we get to the last arcs here, those two are working together. And it is amazing artwork. Lots of great, huge two-page spreads like the mission briefing going into it. Some great single-page uh, single shots where it's the whole shot, like the death of Ibtisam. All these really, really good moments. Uh, this is where the visuals stick to me when it comes to the iconic Rogue Squadron imagery. Even, even specific panels have stood out to me over the years, like Wedge finally getting ready to beat the living crap out of Saint Pestage because he isn't willing to be bunked, basically, with Ibtisam's body, calling it animal waste in the process. I mean, it's really... It's got some dynamic art to the point where I really would have loved to see these guys use that art style to create a Rogue Squadron cartoon series, which is something that people were asking about for a very, very long time. But the backbone of this story, of course, is Soontir Fell. And I feel like, having read through this entire thing, I know Fell, I like Fell, but there were way too many things that never got resolved here. And, I mean, for instance, there's a point at which Fell uses a special secret covert agent code to get information from an Imperial. And there's a couple times where that is suggested that maybe he really isn't willingly with Rogue Squadron. Maybe he's an Imperial spy, or maybe he's at least presenting himself to the Imperials as if he's not a turncoat, but is actually a spy. And that never really seems to go anywhere. It just kind of drops. The entire point of him joining Rogue Squadron is, I want to find my wife, Wedge's sister, and get her out of harm's way. I must find her and help her uh, so we can be together, and I need Rogue Squadron to help me do that. And they focus on that with family ties. They mention it a lot in Masquerade and in Mandatory Retirement, but by the end, it never happens. We never get to see that play out. And even in the end, even keeping Baron Fell aside for just a second, um, at the end, what do we get? The entire storyline is about, let's get Sate Pestage off of Coruscant. There are other issues with Sate Pestage I'll bring up here at another point in this episode, but suffice to say, by the end of this episode, Sate Pestage, or this episode, this uh, uh, omnibus, Sate Pestage is dead, not because he was trying to leave with the rogues and died anyway, but at the last minute, his prejudice gets the better of him, and he says, never mind, I've gone through all this, I don't really want to leave, Let, turns himself over to the Imperials and gets himself choked to death for it. I mean, it's kind of a, really? kind of ending, like there is no payoff to this mission, unless the idea is to show that, you know, as they're saying in the last few pages, not every mission must be a success, but it's the drive to get it done right. It's the drive to provide people with more humane options, and if they choose not to take those options, that's fine, but you must be the one honorable enough to provide those uh, those options. So there's that ending that kind of falls flat without really getting payoff, and then of course, we end this series with Soontir Fell still as part of Rogue Squadron. By the time we get to the books, not only is he not with the rogues anymore, but he's presumed dead uh, shortly, there, uh, shortly after the, the liberation of Coruscant, and we eventually find that he's with the Empire of the Hand. It's like the, the Imperials undertake to go like kidnap him back, and in the process of that, he sort of just vanishes until he shows up in later stories. And we never get a satisfactory answer to what happened, nor do we get to see it. They say in the final issue in the letters page, uh, or what would be the letters page, it's kind of a final message, it's either there or it's in the previous issue's letters page, in the individual issues, that um, a good storyteller doesn't answer all the questions. They always leave loose threads so they can be more room to tell stories. Yes, that's true, but you also need to provide payoff. If you don't yeah. provide payoff, 
then it falls apart. It, they basically ended the X-Wing series to a degree the same way that they ended Invasion. Well, we've hit a satisfying story ending point, so I think we can cut it here with threads dangling that have yet to be given a satisfactory answer. So while this is an amazing omnibus, the best of the three, and the best that the Rogue Squadron series ever gets, especially with Nato and Crespo rocking it art-wise, and Michael Stackpole creating the story without someone else interpreting his story into script form, it's straight Stackpole here, it, it does leave some room for more. It does leave a bit to be desired because it doesn't wrap up the loose ends. Even one more story arc would have been great to wrap that up, or even some references in the books, but of course the books were being written at the same time, so they couldn't give away where the comics were going to go. Uh, for all intents and purposes, Great Omnibus, it's the one you should read. You don't even need to read the other two to read this one. But do not expect full answers. Do not expect it to have uh, as much uh, of a... For something that is so old, do not expect that we already know the answers to all of these things, because they're threads that were dropped and may never be returned to. Yeah, and that was one of the things where, you know, when you told me about the the one half, I was like, what, are you kidding me? I thought I had them all. And I was like, okay, well, obviously this stuff happens in that. Oh, I guess I'm so freaking wrong. But, you know, you mentioned uh, about about State and uh, how, you know, he left and his pe prejudice. Cap says something that I found was interesting, you know, because they're, they're talking with Wedge and State and Cap's standing there and State tells Wedge, but I can no longer turn over Imperial Center. And Cap goes, that's what you imps always missed. The rebellion wasn't about planets, it was about people. It wasn't about power, but about freedom. People will do a lot to win freedom for themselves and for those they hold dear. And I found that, you know, that says quite a bit about the struggle of the rebel, uh, of the rebels. <laughs> that tells a lot of the struggle of the rebellion, you know, that they're not just out there to defeat the empire, they're out there to liberate people, you know, they're out there to increase people's way of life. Um, but the whole fell aspect, I that kind of bums me because I did kind of held out this hope that somewhere there was a project that I have yet to come across and I always forget about when I'm researching things that I may not have, you know, and that that was out there. And now I, I'm just kind of like, well, there's the excited aspect of, well, there's story potential, you know. I mean, they can always come back and do it. There's a lot of potential stories out there um, this coming Monday, which will probably be after this episode's out there. I've got a story potentials in the EU article on Star Wars Report that is touching on just this sort of thing. And so you may even see this little fell bit come into one of these later because I plan on doing more of them. Because there are a lot of story potentials out there just like this where you have such great buildup and yet there was no delivery. And it makes you wonder, like, did that just one of those guys that was part of that original planning get fired or retired or quit along the way and they just forgot to come back to this project? Or... Years later, like Crimson Empire, are we going to finally get the end of Fell's story arc and kind of tie him to the Empire of the Hand? Well, I know that at one point there was supposed to be a separate storyline, the re-enlistment of Baron Fell. Uh, that was going to talk about him essentially leaving and returning to Imperial service and eventually finding himself in the employment of Thrawn as part of the Empire of the Hand. It was something that was being worked on by Stackpole and Zahn, who had together worked to sort of craft an overall plot arc for Fell, because he knew that Fell was going to wind up showing up in some of Zahn's materials as well, but it never happened. It was originally going to be a comic series, and it was going to be knocked off, nope, can't do that, we'll make it a short story series. That never happened. So it's one of those things that kind of, it existed for a moment, and then it disappeared, and now, you know, this series is old enough. I mean, this is all wrapping up, what, 97 or so, give or take, 97, yeah. 98? 
that now there are tendencies for this to sort of be be smacked around. Um, I mentioned the thing with Sate Sate Pestage a moment ago. Sate Pestage, um, we don't even know at this point whether this was the real Sate Pestage or not, because Sate Pestage had apparently appeared in Dark Empire serving on Bis with the Reborn Emperor, and that was released earlier. It was something that was discussed uh, bit by bit, of course, as it went along within the EU. Some source books referenced it, and between different source books, there were times when they referred to the idea that Sate Pestage had a clone made of himself, or the Emperor made a clone of Sate Pestage, and well, the one that died in mandatory retirement, the one that got choked to death by Krennel, actually, that's the clone. But then there were other sources saying, huh, no, I can see that working the, the other way around. Yeah, but yeah. That's, yeah, they say, no, that's the clone. Uh, sorry, the, the one on this is the clone. This was the real one. And it's gone back and forth. The different source books cannot seem to agree on how this is working. And moreover, the time frame doesn't seem to have been worked out. These comics repeatedly, this particular arc in this omnibus, repeatedly refers to it being six months after the Battle of Endor. And yet the omnibus has different dates in it for when these stories take place. Um, it's it's like these stories are being sort of tweaked and squished and molded to try to make them fit in with other things that have been released since and almost sort of have forgotten that it was there. Or in this case, it was sort of like this was made forgetting that something else was there. They had to make a retcon to smooth away that, but then they had to make a retcon because somebody forgot the retcon, then another retcon because somebody forgot the retcon <laughs> of the retcon over and over and over again. So there's oh, very Leland. much... Yeah, is this the real Sate Pestage or not? And, you know, part of me wonders, does it make a difference? Whether he was a clone or not, he was in charge of the Empire, so getting him out of there for the rise of Isard was a necessity. But at the same time, if this really wasn't the quote-unquote real him, that again sort of cheapens Ibtisam's death and some of the other characters in here. Ibtisam, at least, we had a lot of character development, um, and her death gives us a lot of character development and character action for Nuren Vakil. Uh, who was the Quarren, who was sort of, if not falling for Ibtisam, then certainly was was growing in great respect, and those two were kind of the closest of the two pilots, uh, or, or they were closest to each other compared to being close to anybody else. But yeah. it sort of somewhat cheapens that. I, I mean, there's a point where, you know, when Ibtisam dies, you've got two pages of a quick battle scene where the sh it's shot down, but I don't remember Ibtisam getting any lines in that segment. It's sort of a, a where no, is I'm she? hit! And she's out! It's hit! Oh, oh, is she dead? Until later on when they, of course, recover the body and realize that she is. So, I don't know, I don't want to see that. That's one of the most memorable deaths in this entire comic book series. Nothing really compared to the death scenes in the X-Wing novels. But in the comic series, that's probably the single most memorable death. And yet, you could argue that it could be cheapened if this wasn't really the real Sate Pestage. But again, I would submit, does it? make a difference whether he was real or not if he believed himself to be real and had the same knowledge because it would in theory provide the same value to the new republic one would think yeah two quick comments on that one i i think from the clone aspect and and istabo's death i don't think it's going to cheapen her death because whether it was him or the clone he had the power, and the play that they were trying to do would have worked either way. Now, on the token of if if it's a clone, or if there was a clone to explain the two at one time, I honestly think for the, the sake of this story and the other one, it would work out better 
for the one in Dark Empire to be the clone. Like Palpatine moves bodies, realizes, hey, State was just a total, total criff head. And, you know, he was, he, he, something happened after I died. He got corrupted, but I need him. He was like a nice right head man. And so I'm going to reclone him, you know, kind of, kind of like maybe set the, the date back on his uh, flash mind, the, 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 the programming they do where they transfer all the memories, maybe program it. So he's only up to a point where, you know, Palpatine could trust him or something like that. But either way, I, I really think that in Dark Empire, that state was the actual clone. It would make more sense because Palpatine's a clone. He's in the cloning facility. Anything clone-wise would make sense to have that be. And otherwise, you got to find this elaborate way for him to have made the clone, let that clone think it was actually state, and it, it just seems more convoluted. But if you have the Dark Empire one, that seems to make more sense. All the technologies right there where the clone of Palpatine's at, if you wanted to make anything like that, that would be the time and place. Now, the other one, when you mentioned, you know, it, it was one of the lines that uh, Izzard says. She talks about in the six months since they murdered our emperor, they've been consolidating their forces. They were bound to act sometime. I could see that line in two ways. The way you're you're describing where, you know, obviously they've changed events down the road. But the other one is is that, okay, maybe it's a year later, and she's just talking about those first six months after Endor. Yeah, but but they say it repeatedly. It's not just the one line. That's the thing. If it was said just in one conversation, it would make sense, oh, not really six months, it's six months since such and such. But it's said multiple times. It's the only time reference we tend to get in this series that gets repeated. Uh, as for Sate, True. I, I will say from the Dark Empire standpoint, if I'm remembering correctly, he didn't actually appear in Dark Empire, Dark Empire 2, or Empire's End. If I remember, that was background from the Dark Empire source book. And I think what they tried to do was given when that was published, they initially tried to say, well, see, this new thing contradicted it, so the new thing has to be the clone, only then maybe they turned it around and said, no, that was in an actual story as opposed to a source book, so it gets to be the real one, the other one's the clone, and then it just kind of got lost in the retconning of the retconning, and it became kind of a mess as it went along. I would argue that at least in that case, I would I would go with the, the second group of people, you know, that yeah... Uh, yeah, one of them was the original version, and now it's been retconned, and he is still somehow alive for this story, or, or he still is able to die in this story, but at least it's a story, not just a source book. I would always take a story over a source book when it comes to a piece of information, but that's just me from a standpoint of, of personal preference. Um, even then, though, you would think that if, it was, if this was written today, it would be his death here that was considered uh, the official... A real death of the character if they weren't going to turn one into a clone or something like that because the Dark Empire source book was published back in 1993. This was published in 1998. And by yeah. current reckoning, almost always they've said new continuity overrides old unless specifically said otherwise. Like in the case of, say, Path of Destruction, weaving its own Path of Destruction over the Jedi vs. Sith comic series. But this was all made in a different time. This was pre-Holocron continuity database. This is pre-Del Rey. So this is still in an era in which those types of issues had not emerged. I mean, at this point, we didn't even have the prequels yet when these were being produced. Oh, another another thing I'd like to point out is uh, the first comic we have, in Empire Service, we see one of the pilots that gets shot down, Tel Sidge, I believe her name is, and she is messed up. She's never going to fly again. But come mandatory retirement, and now at this point, Fell is no longer with the Empire. He's no longer with the 181st. He's now a rogue. And she's still there. She's now a tech. And she is like totally messed up. Missing an arm, missing a leg and all this. And she's just like, uh, 
Excuse me, you're Fell, right? Yes, Lieutenant. Tessen Kerr, I was on Oridin, and I think you did this to me and killed my gunner. And, you know, the, the mechanic's like, this isn't the time. She's like, cool your jets, Tex. This is the time for what I have to say. And she goes on to basically tell him how anyone that's willing to turn their back on the Empire and come fly with the rogues and with the Rebellion could fly with her any day. And, you know, basically she's just like, that Imperial, or not the Imperial, but the Rebellion outlook of, you know, it doesn't matter, past is past, you're here now. And, and you see that playing out through the rogues because you've got like Tycho, Hobby, Wes, you know, uh, Biggs. These guys were all trained, you know, not every one of them, but, but most of them were trained by Fell himself under the Empire. And they all turned and were all embraced kind of readily. And yet now Fell, who's taken so many more years to do it, they're, they're kind of like not wanting to trust him, which is where that whole AT3 code comes into play. I mean, yeah, I, I definitely was, as it was going, was expecting that to to be something that the Rebellion would find out. And, and they do. When he gets to that point where they capture the TIE fighter in mandatory, I think it's mandatory retirement. They capture the TIE fighter and they pull the pilot out and he gets in there and he gives the code to have him stand down. Actually, I think that might be in the one before it. Well, when that happens, you can look. And after he gets done talking to the general or admiral, whoever it was, of the Empire side and gets him to, to stand down. You can watch the rogues in the background through the cockpit glass jumping up and down. So they heard everything he said. They had to know he was playing that ATC or AT3 code and whatever that played in. But, and really quick, one other thing is there was one point where we see another Imperial spy, and I think this was in uh, mandatory retirement, but he says X14 and he, he gives his briefing and then takes off. And I was like, ooh, like X7. And I thought that was an interesting little tie. And again, that was another one of those where they left it completely off. And it makes you wonder, like you said, how, how Stackpole and Zahn were working on things. Like, when did this get dropped? And why didn't Zahn, when he was continuing Fell's backstory, throw in more subtle ties to kind of give us an idea? I mean, obviously, he held that back because at one point they were going to do a project. That makes sense to me. But at the same token, it's like, man, you could have done a little bit more to kind of fill that in. Or maybe when I read it, I just wasn't paying attention to those finer details and I missed a lot of that. But I don't remember much beyond him just showing up in the Empire of, of the Hand. We don't. I mean, we don't get a whole lot of his backstory uh, from the standpoint of where he goes from here. We get tons of backstory in terms of leading into him taking part in this series. We get almost nothing in terms of things going forward for him. And we just kind of see him pop up. In the Empire of the Hand. That's what I think that reinstatement of Fell thing was supposed to be. It was supposed to be that sort of bridging tale, kind of like Lightsider was meant to be the bridging tale connecting Dark Empire 1 to Dark Empire 2, but it in and of itself wasn't ever made. Or was it Spectre of Thrawn, the comic book series? It was meant to connect with Spectre of the Past and Vision of the Future, you know, any of those types of things. Uh, they were meant to connect, but then didn't. I do like the fact that we do get that background on him at least from before then, that was when Steve Crespo joined the series, and we got that awesome making of Baron Fell. If there was one single issue of a Star Wars comic that I've thought of as one of my favorites for years, unwaveringly since it came out, this is one of them. It's really cool in that he's able to weave it together, as you mentioned, with Hal Horn, because of course Coran Horn shows up later. Uh, it weaves him in briefly with Tarkin. It weaves him in with... Uh, Han Solo being one of the ones yeah. training under him. We've got uh, uh, and that played Biggs. in later too. I mean, they they they're bantering about their time. I found that was was one of those things that I've loved about the X Wing books in general. Yeah, they got a lot of connecting backstory here. Um, we've got the different characters that he's training. We've got I like the fact that he would have been on the Death Star 
had it not been for Biggs and the others uh, raiding, or not raiding, but uh, taking over the Rand Ecliptic and then taking off to join the Rebellion, that was what wound up bringing some disgrace to Fell, so he wasn't going to take the position aboard the Death Star like he would have been. Instead, he gets booted down. Uh, he winds up being able to meet Wedge's sister, etc., etc. Though what gets me, probably my favorite bit of that, let me flip, I'm flipping to the comic <laughs> here, is... I know, I know it, right where you're going with this, because I'm waiting for yep, you to say it. <laughs> it's... It's a piece here that is tied into a couple of different things. Uh, one of them, I think, being Side Trip, I think was the name of those short stories by Stack Poland's on, where we had found that it was Grand Admiral Thrawn, though not a Grand Admiral yet, so Mithron Nuruodo, who was someone who was the man planning the Dara 4 attack. Now, if you've only seen The Empire Strikes Back as film or read the novel, Dara 4 means nothing to you, probably. But Dara 4 was the opening scene of Freedom's Winter, which is the first episode of the uh, Empire Strikes Back National Public Radio radio drama by Brian Daly. And not only do they have Soontir Fell as part of this mission that is planned by Thrawn and sort of sees his reactions to it thereafter, he went so far, Stackpole in writing that, went so far as to go back to the radio drama because if you look, there's a, a, a full-page spread in that uh, which is the first page of the Dara 4 battle. Starts with, I put the alien from my mind. My job was to kill rebels and nothing would deter me. When you get to the next page, the very last bit, where Commander, N Commander Nera, the leader of Renegade Flight, which was half of what winds up being Rogue Squadron at this point, because um, it's, it's Red Squadron that gets Renegade and Rogue Flights, and then it winds up becoming Rogue Squadron later, taking the name of one of the halves, because Renegade Flight is destroyed at the Battle of Dara 4. He says, as he's about to be destroyed here, as the ties are coming down on him, All ships, this is Commander Nera. Break contact and escape if you can. Break contact and run for it! And then it cuts off because he's been blasted and destroyed, which, of course, you hear in the radio drama. Of course, now we know that what we're hearing is him being killed by Soontir Fell because that exact <laughs> line is in the comic, word for word, as Nera's ship is being destroyed. Kudos to Stackpole for actually taking the time to not just recreate the scene, but actually find the actual dialogue. So often we get recreated scenes in Star Wars comics and novels where, yeah, it's the same scene, but the dialogue is different. Yeah. Here he made sure the dialogue actually fit for Commander Nera's last moments, and that, from a continuity standpoint, thrills me. He put in the time to do the homework. See, I did that with my fan fiction for the New Jedi Order. I tied it in with Vector Prime when they're coming up off of one of the, the planets. And they had a, an X-Wing pilot that had no name. And I tied one of my characters into that. And I just, man, I love it when they do those kind of, of connections. I mean, it was in our last Rogue Squadron omnibus where we had a scene similar like that. But they, they did opposite. They kept it close but added new dialogue into it that kind of, you know, threw it off because the dialogue that was repeated had been changed just a little bit as well. But the interesting thing about it, and you, you went right after what I was thinking. For me, it was Fell's reaction when Vader's laying out the battle and what Fell is thinking. He goes, I heard Lord Vader's words, but I could not fully concentrate on them. The plan he outlined would work, but I knew it was not his. It was elegant, but lacked the dark nuances I expected from him. And, and you got a picture of Thrawn sitting against the edge, and he goes, Given the Empire's xenophobia, only one thing could explain the presence, nay, the even existence of an alien admiral. And then it goes to him, and he's kind of got his arms crossed. He's kind of got like a scowl, like he's not buying into this. That he, too, has a little human prejudice. It's his plan. He set this up. An alien will save the Empire. 
I don't know what scares me more. That realization or the aliens knowing Nod. And of course, they end that with once the battle is over, you wind up basically seeing characters who, for the most part, have been failures in some form or another or have been less than stellar winding up getting promoted because this is an actual win for the Empire. So Derricote becomes a general. We wind up seeing him later on. Fenir, Turfenir, becomes the commander of his old squadron, Fell's old squadron, which, again, a character we see later on. We see that this is the moment where Fell himself becomes a colonel, which is the rank that he has as we head into these stories, and he becomes the leader of the 181st, which becomes the thing that he is most famous for. But then it has sort of to the background... And it's kind of cool because we see Thrawn standing behind Isard, so it's sort of connecting the Thrawn books plus the X-Wing books down into The Empire Strikes Back and into the comic series, kind of a nice, really sort of a, a spider web of connections here, and says, because we know that this here is taking place about four years, actually more like four and a half years, before Thrawn engages in the Thrawn campaign that we see in Timothy Zahn's original three Star Wars novels, but the alien, he got nothing. Rumors later placed him in the unknown regions, an embarrassment, clearly, that the Emperor wanted hidden far away from Imperial Center. Well, we know, of course, that is far from the truth of why he was out there, and he does come yeah. back. But at this point, you know, of course, he would see Thrawn as the embarrassment. Though, interestingly, this is somewhat around a similar time as to when the TIE Fighter video game is going to put Thrawn out there chasing down uh, Zarin, the rogue Imperial. So, it's kind of cool to see that, plus... You know, as they run through here, they kind of speed up the last about year and a half of his story as it goes from The Empire Strikes Back up until the beginning of his appearance in, in The Empire Service. But we get a brief glimpse at the idea of internal disc. Well, let me give you the actual phrasing here. It says, events kept me from thinking long and hard about the hypocrisy of it all. That is, the aliens saving the Empire. Things like Hoth, right? Empire Strikes Back happens immediately after Dara 4. Uh, includes Darafor if you talk about the radio drama, then... Which, in which we also even learned that Fell was assigned at the Battle of Hoth to taking down the transports, which I found that was an interesting thing. I'm like, he was at Hoth? What? Yep, yep. And then we have uh, things like Hoth, uh, internal discontents, and that shows Shizor going up against Vader, so of course, Shadows of the Empire. Uh, the Indoor debacle, um, which of course, he is present at the Battle of Indoor, and the humiliation at Brintal, and that connects it into in the Empire service, and he has this great uh, sort of soliloquy at the end where he says, uh, that is at the end of the making of Baring Fell, the time I have spent as your guest, read captive, has allowed me to do thinking I had avoided. The Empire I served died with the Emperor, probably before that. So he's very much in sort of a Kir Kanos type of mindset here, that he's getting to the point of realizing that the Empire he serves now is not the same as it was when Palpatine was around, which to him is a bad thing, although to everyone else, it's a good thing. Uh, he says, I now stand ready to offer my life, my skills, and my knowledge. I ask you only one thing in return. My wife will have fled by now. Help me find her, save her, and the finest weapon the Empire ever created will be yours to command. No arrogance there or anything, but I mean, that's kind of the thing. It's, it's look, what I fought for is gone. Now, he's almost like a mercenary in the sense of He's going to whoever can do more for him. It seems like as it goes along, he starts to become more connected to the rebel cause. And you brought up the good point of how, at times, it's kind of like they don't want to accept him. 
And repeatedly, we get this comment from other characters of, you know what, you know, we were Imperial pilots. In fact, we trained under him and we came over. Is it really just a question of timing? Is it really such a thing as you know, that there is a wrong time or a time when it's too late to join the side of good and to give up evil? And again, that's sort of those moral questions that Baron Fell brings to mind. You know, to my mind, in theory, there should not be a time where it is too late to turn from evil. But at the same time, by the same token, you know, maybe it doesn't mean as much. Maybe it's not as hard a decision when you make it after Palpatine's gone. It's like someone who was a Nazi disavowing the Nazi party, and instead of doing it at the height of the Holocaust, when he sees things going horribly, doing it perhaps right after Hitler has killed himself in his eagle's nest bunker, you know? There's a point at which maybe it's not a bad thing that you waited so long so much as it's it's an easier choice. It seems as though it's less about truly being against the evil and more about the idea that, you know, things have crumbled and you're trying to get off of a sinking ship. Well, you know, you mentioned something that I find funny. You know, you talked about how his ego about, you know, where he says, my wife has fled and you'll command me. Think about the ego of the rebellion. They didn't even find his wife and they automatically started commanding him around. Like, it's, oh, we're going to take care of that. Don't worry. You, you just get in that, that X-Wing cockpit and you go out there and shoot down ties. Don't don't worry. We'll, we'll get her. And then we never even see it resolved. I mean, that's a little cocky in and of itself. Like, don't worry, Phil. We got, yeah, your wife, we got sources that track her down. In fact, we saw her just yesterday. It's like Michael Schofield. We're always a corner behind her. Uh, it, it, that, that one's a little weird, you know. But to get to that point where in the making of Baron Fell, where he's been captured, that to me was a cool scene because, okay, in the making of Baron Fell, we learn about his sister. We don't find this out until after he's been captured about the sister. That that comes, you know, he's already been shot. But the how they get there was interesting to me because when we get to the other part, we learn that Fell has known Wedge has been a member of Rogue Squadron for some time now, and he has been kind of dreading the day that he's going to have to kill his wife's brother. And Yet, he pretty much figures out when he's fighting this one X-Wing that I think I've got him. And Wedge is doing the same thing. He's like, this guy's all over me. I'm tipping my moves. I got to do something different. He wants me to go left. He wants me to keep going left. So I go right. And he turns right. And there is at this time Colonel Psalm. And he's flying in the X in the Y-Wing that, that Fell has disabled. He blasted one of the ion drives off of it. And it's floating in space. And yet he's waiting for him. So as Wedge turns away, boom, there's Slom. He shoots a photo or a, the ion cannon. It hits the TIE fighter and they've disabled Fell. So that was the humiliation at Brintel that he talks about. But I, I found that that was just an interesting scene that, you know, Wedge actually outsmarted Fell. I thought that, I mean, Greg, he didn't shoot him down, but he used Rogue Squadron and he used all the assets of the Rebellion to bring down Fell. And I thought that that was an interesting way about it. And from the overall perspective of it after i've gone to the next story read it and come back i found that that scene was much more profound yeah this is true you do get a sense here that sort of they are the two that are equals that everybody else you know can still learn a bit from wedge but fell is the imperial equivalent of wedge i can't wait if they ever do it i really hope they do in the x-wing uh type the x-wing miniatures game that they've got right now. They're putting out another round of expansions very soon. An A-Wing, TIE Interceptor, then the larger Millennium Falcon and Slave One miniatures to go with it. I'm really hoping, and I don't think they've announced it, they may have, but I'm really, really hoping that the TIE Interceptor will come with a pilot card for Soon Tier Fell. 
because I want to see how they make that card match up with the Wedge Antilles card that we already have, so we can see those two in combat within that game. I think that'd be very fun. Uh, I would point out something that struck me that probably would not have ever occurred to you, Mark, because you're reading this in the Omnibus edition. Um, aside from the fact that the letters pages are awesome, which is very fun to have this, it's part of why I like having the original Marvel series, was to read through the letters columns as I was reading through the individual issues. But this is where we see a shift in paper quality. Uh, as you read up through here, and I think it's across the Star Wars line, it's not just this series, but you can notice it because this is one of the few series that was an ongoing Star Wars series at the time. Throughout In the Empire Service and all the Rogue Squadron stories prior to that, you're on this sort of regular paper. It's not slick. It's, it's nice paper, but it's not that glossy white slick paper that we're used to now for Star Wars comics. It was a little bit more like a step up from newsprint, but not quite the glossy kind. I'm not even entirely sure what to call that type of paper. Then we get The Making of Baron Fell, which is a 48-page special issue, number 25 of Rogue Squadron, and it gets the really, really nice glossy paper. But after that, they don't return to the original paper. It stays on the nice glossy paper from then forward. So it would seem that right around mid-1998 is when they make that jump from going with the original, you know, kind of standard paper to the glossy paper, and then they don't ever really turn back from it. I very much prefer the nice, glossy paper that we had, and it didn't even wind up changing the cover price at all. I mean, they were $2.95 prior to that. They were $2.95 after that. The only point at which the cover price got raised on this series, at least during this omnibus, was for the making of Baron Fell, and that's because it was twice as long, and it was only $3.95. It was only a dollar more rather than being twice the price. So very, very cool to see them switch. It's almost like seeing a point of evolution in Star Wars comics in general as we're reading this specific series. And one last thing, you know, we mentioned that the other two volumes kind of had nothing going on for them. Pallor. Pallor's character and what's going on in her home world takes kind of more of center stage. She's in this a lot more, but there's a scene later where Leia goes to uh, do a rebel summit on her planet. But she's doing a lot of stuff. I mean, she's when they go to save Fell's uh, nephew, she's there with Wedge and Hobby. You know, there's a lot more going on for her character throughout this, and I thought that, that was really cool way to keep her relevant to the story. You know, we see Han, we see Chewie, we see Winter's back, and she's actually pretending to be uh, Leia, and and that was kind of a cool little touch on things. Which which is funny because Winter is always said to be someone who can be mistaken for Leia if you're not looking extremely closely. Now, I notice the same thing kind of happens in Scoundrels as what happens here, which is when she's not trying to be like Leia, she really doesn't look like Leia. I mean, she yeah. looks pretty much identical to Leia in, uh, oh, uh, what was it called? The Rebel Opposition, but that's because all the female characters were drawn the same except for the hair, very much like the citizens of Onderon in The Soft War, this week's episode of The Clone <laughs> Wars. They're, they all look exactly the same. Uh, only here... Whenever it's time for her to look like Leia, she looks so much like Leia that she is able to confuse and surprise Tycho and make him think that it's Leia, at least when the lights are a little bit dim. But then every other time we see Winter here, she looks nothing like Leia. She's got gigantic lips, for instance, compared to the way that Leia is drawn. There doesn't seem to be any attempt when it's just Winter as Winter to make her look anything even remotely like the character she supposedly very closely resembles. And I gotta wonder how much of the resemblance isn't natural, but is cosmetic. Because the yeah. same type of thing pops up, uh, I mean, we're, 
I don't think it's a spoiler because we see her on the cover uh, and she's in the dramatist personae, but Winter shows up in Scoundrels, which comes out in, what, December, I guess it is? Um, yeah. And Han, of course, is the primary character of Scoundrels. And yet, I don't think there's ever a point in that story, if I remember, where he looks at her and is reminded of Leia at all. He has no re- recollect or no, what's the word I'm looking for? No recognition, no recognition of yeah. how similar the two of them look. So I'm wondering how much Winter really was meant to look like Leia. Certainly the artist here really took some liberties if she was supposed to, because she really, really doesn't. If anything, she looks more like Isar, just with the same color eyes instead of one of one color, one of the other, than anywhere. And speaking of which, something else that was pointed out within the letters pages, they do, in Family Ties, get Koran Horn's hair and eye color wrong. Uh, it was mentioned in one of the letters pages, and basically the... Uh, uh, the colorist through the editor apologized for it, mainly to Stackpole for getting the uh, eye color and hair color wrong on a character that he, of course, created and purposely inserted into that story. So, I don't know, again, the art is awesome, but it does have its little idiosyncrasies here and there. Well, I was trying to retcon it away in my head, like maybe Bale went and paid for some surgery done when they were both little, so Winter would look enough like Leia that he could use that to his benefit down the road. <laughs> But I mean, even then, why would she look? Why would she not look like Leia now? Well, yeah, Han, Han not seeing that connection anywhere is definitely a a, a big hole in that theory. I just want to see. I want to see Han and Tycho start beating the crap out of each other <laughs> because they're hitting on the same woman, and it's either Leia, and both of them think uh, that one, one thinks it's Winter, the other one thinks it's Leia, or maybe it's Winter and one thinks it's Leia, one thinks it's Winter, and either way, they start beating each other up, and the girls are just having fun with the fact that they're so boneheaded. <laughs> and yeah, I could just see him like swap dating, date swap. <laughs> Let's see how mad you can get Han, Winter. <laughs> He's like, but, oh, that's not Leia, that's Winter. Don't you see those ginormous lips? Yeah, but but again, getting back to to Plur and and Etiu, I know I'm saying the name of the planet wrong, but uh, Tavira again shows up because of what happened in that, and, and I, I I like how there is a a feeling of. Moving on to what we're going to get in the books, you know, you're watching Tavira kind of become more of a threat. You're watching Izzard become and consolidate her power, but you're also watching Koran Horn show up where the rogues are talking about Koran, a rogue. No, we can't have enough X-Wing pilots. You've got uh, Mirix who's talking to Wedge. Well, maybe I'll date one of your pilots when you get a cute one. And Wes is like, what? I'm not cute. And then, you know, and I thought that was funny because Hobby's like, hey, but you remember me, right? I can't, I'm trying to stop thinking, oh, you're trying, you can't get me out of your mind, huh? A lot of funny things like that that kind of tell you, you know, if you've read the other stuff, that things are coming, Koran's going to join, Mirix is going to get up. But there are these little slight touches on those things that if you know where the EU is going to go, you can pick up on that now and, and appreciate it. Yeah, I did like to see Koran Horn in there. I don't think they ever name his partner, actually, in the comic, of course. No, uh, and that bothered me, too. I was like, is, isn't that Wedge's wife down the road? And I do like the fact that we do get to see uh, Mirax. We got to see her, of course, back in Phantom Affair, but she winds up coming back. Although I do think it's funny that when Wedge has a chance to send out a transmission asking for help to anywhere, he calls Mirax. And she shows up at the Pulsar Skate, and basically that's it. If Psalm hadn't have been waiting and she hadn't have just bumped yeah. into him on the way, they would never have gotten the extra help from General Psalm or whatever rank he is at this point, which I thought was kind of, yep, kind of General- bizarre. But yeah, it's, it's a really cool series. I mean, honestly, you could ignore pretty much everything prior to Omnibus number three. You know, if you like the Rogue Squadron stuff, read the other Omnibus, you know, one and two. That's great. 
But if you're just looking for a really good, solid storyline that is about the closest that you're going to get to a broader, connected EU tale from this series and a story that's much more like reading one of the X-Wing Rogue Squadron novels by Stackpole, this is the omnibus to pick up. And again, unlike most, you could read this one without the other ones. This could be a solo purchase. Very much so. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to rephrase what he said a little different. I think that they're all worth your time, but of them all, the third one is by far and away Death Star size next to, uh, you know, a nice little anybody X-Wing in story and in art and all the way around. I mean, you have more dialogue. You have a lot more that's that's applying to other events going on down the road in the EU. There was a lot more payoff in the third one, but I really, I truly feel though that to get part of that payoff for me, I had to read the other two to kind of get there. There would have been characters like Plur that I just, I would have still hated. I'd have been like, I don't know about this one, but it works. It works well, especially for this one. I think the third omnibus, I, I would say if I had to rank them all, I would say that this one gets a strong nine out of 10 and the other ones are probably closer to fives and, and, and a, a three. Uh, you know, they're, they're, it's just really that much better than the other two. But I really, I think there is some merit, some benefit to reading them all, whether it's just that little throw off information here or there, or even if it's just to confuse you more as how the events all fall together. Uh, I'm just one of those equal opportunity guys. I guess that's why I'm the defender of REU. But speaking of, I will ask you a real quick question. Hobby, in the third volume, we see him at a pool. He's in his shorts with Wes. And they're talking about hitting on a girl that's actually going on a blind date with Wedge. But he's got no droid parts. Uh, that kind of threw me off. I mean, am I supposed to assume that he, like Luke, were able to be the, the, the few rebels that could afford to have human replica parts put on them? I mean, isn't at this point he should be half robot, right? Or, or at least missing an arm and a leg? I believe so. But then again, that story, uh, the backstory of that, if I remember, I was told in... The Empire comic series, I think. Uh, maybe, or actually, maybe it was in that X-Wing Rogue Squadron number one half. We don't know, because it's not in this stinking omnibus. Um, ah! But yeah, it, he definitely should be looking a little bit different, unless those are, are flesh-covered. Honestly, I, I don't recall. I don't pay that much attention to the, the cybernetic stages uh, within Hobby's backstory. Yeah. Well, it definitely, I will say this as my final comment on it all, it, it leaves some... Definite awesome story potential placements, some continued Rogue Squadron stories set in the past. We watched Wraith Squadron kick off one in the future. You know, people want X-Wing action, so why not go back? Why not write a story, be it book, comic, novel, heck, even give us a game. I mean, there's something we haven't talked about. How many games are out there X-Wing and Rogue Squadron style that, that add to the story of this? I mean, what, we're talking at least five, maybe six? Well, I mean, I mean, you've got the original X-Wing game, which isn't a direct tie-in, but at least it gives you a chance to fly as if you're part of this. You have the TIE Fighter game that's a sequel to that in a sense. You have X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, then eventually X-Wing Alliance, which is more of a, a tie between the X-Wing and TIE Fighter games heading forward. Uh, but those are more tied into the movies and bringing in characters like Kian Farlander, Merrick Steele, and such. Um, you do have the Rogue Squadron video games themselves. There was the original Rogue Squadron that was released on the Nintendo 64 and also on computer and that sort of thing. You have Rogue Squadron Rogue Leader. You have Rogue Squadron Rebel Strike, I believe is what it was called. Um, and, of course, there's that sort of tie-in of the same franchise but set in a different era where you had Battle for Naboo, which is the one that took place uh, or was released back on the Nintendo 64, took place uh, during the events and right before the events of The Phantom Menace. But, yeah, I mean, they're light tie-ins. 
They're not something that's an absolute necessity. They're much more tied into to missions we've seen elsewhere than necessarily tie-ins to this particular comic series for the most part. Though it would have been cool to see one focused specifically on the comic series events or even the novels events. Maybe something that bridged the two. Uh, maybe they could give us one sometime in the future. Hint, hint, hint. If hint, you're not going to make yes. a Battlefront 3, maybe give us a new Rogue Squadron game that tells us the story of Fel getting back into Imperial hands. Oh, oh. well, I, I want to say it was the one on the 64 where we got to at least play the perspective on the Mon you're on Mon Calamari and you're going up against the world devastators yes, from cause, Dark cause Empire. It, it changes because you play as Luke throughout. If I remember right, you're playing as Luke throughout all the other missions. And then the very last mission is the Battle of Mon Calamari, except all of a sudden you're playing as Wedge, not as Luke as that last level. Yeah, man, that would be that would be great. And I think that's the thing to come away with this. You read these omnibuses, you're going to see a lot of potential for more stories. Maybe that's what the people in power need to do. Go back, read these omnibuses, think about these gap holes, work on some... I mean, you got a whole... What, 2013 is right around the corner, and you're going to be at Zerosville on stories to come up with. Boom, here you go. It's in your own backyard. Just grab it and have somebody do some thinking. Amen to that. And with that, we should probably be wrapping up. I think we've sort of hit our, our time crunch here. So, folks, remember, you can find our show at StarWarsReport.com, as well as on our Facebook page, iTunes, Zune, and airing on Middle Earth Network Radio. If you liked our show, be sure to drop us a review on iTunes or on the Zune Marketplace. And, hey, do the same thing with From the Star Wars Library. If you check out those videos on YouTube, drop in a comment, drop in an email, perhaps. You can fire off an email to us about that or the show itself at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. You can also interact with us on Facebook and Twitter using that same term. On Twitter, it's at SWBeyondFilms. On Facebook, it's Facebook.com slash SWBeyondFilms. Try to make this as easy as possible for you. So simple, a Wookiee could do it. That's right. So, once again, this has been Nathan Butler. And Mark Herlman with Whistler. Thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we'll ever see Rogue Squadron as a game again. Or that we'll ever see Fell going to the dark side again. Or that we're ever going to see Plore with all of her hair back. Yeah, hair. I was like, hey, Plore's got hair, and she's boss. And is it just me, or does it seem like she and Zarcy were about to hook up there as everybody was pairing off? That would make for some weirdness. <laughs> You are an excellent flighter. You too, now kiss me, okay? Kiss me, you- wait, wait, where are your lips? Yeah. I was about to say, your head is so <laughs> horny, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs>